there's a couple different, obviously, you know, the, the yield is definitely a worry. A couple things you can do. So funds can be structured any way that obviously legally is allowed. For example, for our first fund, the two key managers have done syndications before. They're familiar with it. They just haven't closed anything under the fund name. The fund itself does not have properties, like you mentioned. So in that case, what we are doing is the first fund is actually what we call a growth fund. So they are actually getting all of their returns at the end of their whole time instead of through periodic payments, you know, on a monthly or quarterly basis. In essence, buys us a little bit of time to get those properties, you know, acquired, get them stabilized, get them producing the income that is then going to be in return, you know, returned back to those passive investors in the timeline that they chose. So they can choose five years, they can choose eight years, they can choose three years. And the return goes along with the timeline that they chose. You're listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast. We're not here to bruise your bananas with guru sales pitches, overrated fluff, or any other kind of monkey business. We simply provide the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. All right, guys, today's guest is Alexandria Bashir. And I got to be honest, uh, I started talking with Alexandria and the conversation was so good that I forgot to do an intro. Uh, we were literally just rolled right into talking about real estate stuff. And by the time I had realized we had talked about stuff that uh, was so good for the podcast, it was too late for me to, to stop and redo that. So I'm actually doing this introduction separately because of how good the conversation with Alexandria was. So I want to go ahead and preface you guys with that. And Alexandria, she's a private money lender out of Virginia, and she also operates short-term rentals and does crowdfunding operations, as well as being an educator. Uh, she started private money lending when she opened up her company, Infinite Road Investments. Uh, she did that in 2020, and she lends to residential fix and flippers in the Hampton Roads, Virginia area. So if you're in Hampton Roads and you're a contractor, a fix and flipper looking for private money, Alexandria is your girl. She started an educational platform on Facebook and it's called Private Lending Lessons. And it's a good group. It's very active. Uh, it's very well branded. Alexandria does a good job of uh, engaging and posting and, and uh, keeping the conversation going. And in fact, I, I, I actively post on her, uh, on her platform. I consume a lot of the information because private lending is not necessarily my uh, niche in real estate, but I do love the idea of it and how passive it can be. So the conversation that she and I have kind of, it goes all over the place. We talk about a lot of different stuff. In fact, I, I forgot I was report, recording a podcast at one point, started screen sharing a hotel deal that I had under contract or that we, we've since closed on. So uh, it's going to be a real raw conversation between her and I. It's a long one. It's a good one. It's full of content. Uh, I hope you enjoy. And uh, let's go ahead and take Alexandria on the show. Yeah. So uh, you, you said you're an account, a woman's accountability group. Yes. Exclusive to women. I can't, I can't join a sexist. I'm just I don't think they'd say anything, but you'd be the only <laughs> dude in the room. <laughs> yeah. What do you guys do? Is, uh, is it specific to real estate or just life in general? 
Um, there's a lot of real estate focus, so it's, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's 100% real estate you know, all the time. It's really about being able to get, to, to get together, do some networking, connect with other resources that we might have in our network. So if you know, someone comes up that week and says, you know, I need someone to do digital graphics for my you know, Facebook group or whatever it happens to be, I can say, hey, does anybody know or have good experience with someone who does Facebook graphics, you know, I need, I need a contact, I need a connection. So it's really a lot of that. And then the other component is the accountability where you're basically declaring to the group, hey, this is what I'm going to get done this week. And then you show up obviously next week and you have to report in, you know, did you get this done? Why and why not? And it's not necessarily in a negative way, like, oh, you didn't yeah. get this done, but it's, it's really, you know, it's that quintessential thing. People will most likely do something for someone else before they'll do it for themselves. So it, it just adds that component to your business life. I agree. Before I uh, tell you about what something similar I was in, I want to say your glasses are awesome. And I wish my gorilla was wearing those glasses because they're pretty close. <laughs> right that's why i said i loved your logo <laughs> yeah I, I get a screenshot my wife can do uh can do uh what photoshop pretty well i might get her to change the glasses out <laughs> that's cool <laughs> but yeah i uh i was part uh me and a couple of buddies was part of a book club and if you'd asked me when i was you know in my young 20s if i'd ever thought i'd be in a book club no i never thought i would be but it was uh Pretty much what you're describing, just accountability. Like the the book club was the conduit to establish relationships, mm -hmm. and we had like six up to like eight guys, I think, of just people that back in Louisiana where I grew up were some no sort way. of business related. <laughs> yeah, and um, so one one guy was like the head coach of uh, the college there. Another guy was in the oil industry. Me and uh, my partner were in the real estate and and the sporting industry. It was just cool because we all knew each other somewhat, but we would had a book that we would read. Each of us would call one another once, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation before the group conversation. And then we would kind of have to report, hey, this is what I learned about this guy. It's what we shared. And then everybody would go through and talk about the book. And to be honest, it, it was right when COVID just got started. So everybody was looking for something to do while they're home. But at the moment, like, people started going back to work, it kind of just like fell off, but it was really yeah. good whenever it happened. Uh, just to get like network with people and bounce ideas off of somebody who had a specialty outside of your own. So I like yeah. It. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you probably recognize the city behind me then. <laughs> Is that, that's new Orleans bridges that's right there. New Orleans. Yeah. yeah. What are you from Louisiana? Yeah. What part? Uh, I grew up in Slidell. Slidell, Louisiana. I grew up in like, that's Charles. right. All right, I love it out there. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I close uh, in June, June first. We close on this little uh, hotel that I'm buying. Uh, me and some friends. I'm buying it from a friend of mine. It's outside of Lake Charles and Lake Arthur. Have you ever heard of Lake Arthur? Mm -hmm. So it's like the only hotel in Lake. Or it's like eight rooms. It's tiny, but it used to be a bank. And uh, friends of of mine. Actually, a girl that was my wedding, uh, her mom and dad took it and like completely renovated it into like a little bitty like boutique. That's adorable. Let me let me share my screen real quick. I'll show it to you. Um, it's like an adorable little hotel. I fell in love with it when they were doing, but I never thought I'd be buying a hotel. And then here I am buying a oh, hotel. Oh, I know. I have short term <laughs> rentals now. It's it's just, I mean, 
a whole different world. I love it. I yeah, I have quite a few short-term rentals back in Panama City. Let me yep. share a screen. I'll show you. I'm uh, post disabled participant screen sharing. Can you uh, oh didn't allow not. me to share a screen? Yeah, I figured it would have. Yeah, I thought it gave me a. There, I'll make a co-host. That should that should allow you to do everything. There we go. Check this guy out. All right, so this used no. to be. It's called La Bank, uh, La Bank Albergo, but it's uh, that's French, fancy French New Orleans for uh, the bank yep. hotel. But if you look at yep. it, it, it looks like a New Orleans style. It really design. does with with the railings and the the black railings and the yeah. little thin wood shutters. Yeah, there's actually like a Florida de lis kind of like half of this picture you can see painted over there. Oh and then my gosh! The, the uh, this is the front where there's still a vault. The vault door is still oh, there, wow. and in the the back they have wine racks. They call it the wine vault. I think they stopped serving wines eight people uh, or eight rooms. It's not really right. enough to, to economy of scale to do that. But there, uh, let me see some of these pictures. Uh, Trying to find the, this room right here. This is the drive-through where the bank teller used to stand. Oh my gosh! And yeah, and so this is a second, a backup vault. So inside the room, they have a vault and the drive-through window that's still there. I'm like, this is so cool. This is so unique. But that's uh, and, what people want in in properties like that. They want a story. Exactly, and that's uh, I fell in love with uh, so multifamily is like my bread and butter. Uh, but I get. I don't want to say get bored with it, but it is not as fun as uh, some of the projects I've been looking at in the short-term industry because I really do like making things unique. Uh, yep. Do I do that in uh, Panama City where I bought a seven-unit apartment complex and then I, I renovated it from, from unit one to seven, right? And you could literally, like if you looked at unit one all the way down the line to seven, you could tell that I got a lot better at renovating. <laughs> Like you, you, unit one is like just ah, I, it's a throwaway just, pancake. Yeah, there's thresholds everywhere. There's like caught everything's held together by caulk and masking tape. But uh by the time I got to unit like five, I was rocking and rolling and you know, honed in my skills. But uh anyway, so I I was renting those out long term and then eventually uh, uh somebody came into my life who's now my property manager and manages everything she was not a property manager back then she was just a tenant of mine um who 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 wanted to help me and one of the first people in my life that came to me and says hey how can i help you do what you're doing better and i was like what what's in it for you? And she's like, well, you know, like just I'm looking for for work. I'm fresh out of a divorce. I'm starting over. Uh, what ended up happening is she rented one of my units, but then she had had met someone and was staying at his house, but never really staying the night in the unit. And she was like, I'd like to rent this out um, short term because it's furnished, it's clean, and and I don't I don't ever stay here. And I was like, tell me the negative. She's like, the negatives. Or it's going to get cleaned like three times a week and you're, you know, you'll get market rent and blah, blah, blah. I was like, you didn't tell me any negatives. <laughs> so I let her do it. And then uh, now all seven of them are running it out short term and it, you know, it's peak summer, make like yep. three times what I would make on long-term rentals. So it's awesome. Yep. And she does all the work, but yeah. Anyways, enough about me. Uh, tell me about, tell me, tell me about yourself. Like, uh, I understand you're like 
into private lending. Sounds like you're into real estate investing as well. Like what's your, what's your jam? Um, so I am a military spouse of about 20 years. My spouse is a active duty service member currently stationed in Norfolk on his way to Italy in a couple months. Ooh. And we've, I'm currently sending my 19th address in 20 years. So mm. we have boogied all over the country. And that obviously makes what most people consider real estate investing rather difficult if you're only going to live somewhere for three months or six months at a time or somewhere com totally remote like Kodiak Island, Alaska. You know, you're not doing real estate investing in Kodiak Island, Alaska, you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it basically necessitated my lifestyle, necessitated my investing style. I mean, I think most people kind of end up going the other way around. And I had no choice because if I wanted to keep my family together, I had to find a way to invest that didn't necessarily require me geographically to be in one particular area for any length of time. So, you know, I think most people see the HGTV, you know, fix and flip shows and, you know, they, they know about landlording and, you know, having tenants and whatnot as a way of investing. But that we tried both of those. We didn't like it. We don't, we refuse to do it again. But I had worked for a hard money lender years and years and years ago when I first got involved in real estate, and I did a lot of his back office stuff. And part of that was processing the payments that came in every month, you know, those interest only payments that everybody yeah. gripes about making to your hard money lender. And, you know, one thing I always noticed and like, you know, if the contractors, you know, ran off with half their deposit and never to be seen again, you still have to pay the mortgage. You know, a tenant moved in, paid the first and last in the security deposit, but then it hasn't paid anything since. You still have to pay the mortgage. And a lot of the rentals, especially in Florida where I was at the time, you know, if you if you cleared $100 and $150 a door like that month, that was a great rental. I mean, it's just not a really strong cash flowing market in most of yeah. Florida. And, mm. you know, it just all the landlords I knew, it always seemed like a game of you know, hope and God, you know, hope and pray that, you know, they pay for that month. You keep your fingers crossed for 30 days and nothing major breaks. And then, you know, once the first rolls around, you do it again. But then at the same time, I was working for this hard money lender where he was routinely cashing checks anywhere between $700 and $2,000. And that's interest only payments. Yeah. And I was like, okay, mm. yeah, I'm doing something wrong here. <laughs> so, yeah, sounds nice. Yeah, right. So you didn't have to swing when, a single hammer. <laughs> and uh, so when, when we kind of settled down a little bit here in Virginia, you know, we talked about we need to get back into investing because now my spouse has hit that, you know, magic 20 year point in the military that everybody thinks there's just these kind of golden handcuffs that break and you're free. But uh, he's in it for a little bit longer. But, you know, it's still we're talking about having that conversation of, you know, going from a military family. That's all we've ever known. That's all we've ever been to being a civilian family. Once he does get out, what do we want that to look like? And what we want that to look like involves a lot of travel, a lot of geographical freedom like we've already had. And to do that, again, we had to necessitate a style of investing that allowed us to do that. So enter you know, private lending. Uh, COVID actually kind of spurred us on a little faster than we were originally planning because at the very beginning of COVID, a lot of hard money lenders literally just shut their doors. Uh, about, yeah. you know, I would say end of March here in Virginia, um, they literally just, they would call borrowers up and say, hey, I know you got a closing tomorrow, but that's not happening. Oof. And it, so, you know, it just ended up working out that the 
active investors in the community, other active duty service members, you know, they had loans or they had deals that basically were supposed to go out on hard money loans. And then suddenly they're left in the lurch, you know, they're supposed to be closing in two days in a week. And then suddenly it's like, nope, sorry, that's not happening. Um, so it really kind of just through mutual connections, it just kind of spurred on this desire to let's, you know, what's better than doing it right now. So we, we got the paperwork together, you know, got attorneys involved and then actually started doing lending as a, as a business, as opposed to just kind of one of, you know, if we knew someone that needed capital, yeah, sure. We'll work with you, you know, kind of thing. And it just became more formal and, you know, an actual business uh, last year during COVID. So what, what is your ideal customer or ideal project that you like to lend to? So we lend only on fix and flips in Hampton Roads that are in school districts that have six out of 10 or better as far as their rankings go. Uh, usually ARVs are anywhere between about 250 and I'd say 325 because that makes it fairly affordable for the large military community that's here. They're in good school districts. They have to be within about 10% of the average square footage of the neighborhood and they have to be within about 10% of the average uh, median home price for that zip code. So we obviously don't want, you know, the biggest, nicest neighborhood in an area where it's not so great. And we don't want the biggest, nicest house in a, you know, neighborhood where everything's 1500 square feet, but the one you're buying is, you know, 2,500 square feet. That could potentially cause a problem, you know, when you're trying to establish an ARV or even sell it. That That is a very uh, specific market and type. So you're the second lender I've talked to who's like, this is the area I lend in and this is why I lend there. Um, whenever I think about, uh, because I see on Facebook, a lot of like private lenders being like, Hey, we're lending private, we're lending private money to like a barrage of people. And, uh, the last guy I talked to, his name is Jess Spreet. You probably know him. Uh, I think yeah, he's in, your, he's in your my group. group. Yeah, yeah. He's like, look, man, good, hard money lenders don't have to advertise that they're hard money. No. lenders. like, uh, people come yeah. to them because they know it, they lend in that area. So why, why do you pick a specific area, um, and, and a specific asset class uh, to lend to? There's a couple different reasons. Uh, primarily, most private lenders are going to lend in a specific market, potentially, you know, two or three cities, but they are usually always in the same state. And that is because of the laws that are required. You know, you have to meet certain guidelines, certain regulations for both lending and on the side of, you know, potentially licensing, if you need to be a licensed mortgage broker, for example. And then the, each state and sometimes municipalities have what's called usury laws, which are the upper limits of you know, what you can charge as far as fees and interest rates and the terms under which you can lend. I mean, it's just there's a lot of variables there. So if you go through the cost of having you know, your documents, deed of trust, for example, here in Virginia, if you have a promissory note and a deed of trust that is all kind of pitched, you know, ready to go for Virginia, and then someone, you know, reaches out to you from Georgia and says, hey, I want a loan, you know, for this rental property in Georgia. I don't know anything about lending in Georgia. I could tell you what lending in general looks like, but I don't know what the usury laws are. I don't know what the lending laws are. I don't even know if it's legal for me as a Virginia resident to lend in Georgia. So I would have to go through that time, that expense of getting docs prepared for Georgia laws. You know, it's just, it's a whole thing. So from that perspective, that's usually what limits a lot of private uh, capital is the laws that are just local to what they know. So 
you know, for example, Jaspreet's in California, but he lends in Indianapolis, yeah. but he knows the laws in both of those states to be able to do that legally. Yeah, because I've asked him twice, hey, can I get money in Florida? He's like, I don't lend there, man. I'm like, yeah. well, I'm going to keep asking until you give me money. He's like, keep on asking, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> right. right? So, well, that's, so I, do, that's I do know a couple in, in Florida. So if you need a connection, I can make a connection for you. I do for sure, because uh, that's okay. where we operate out of. In fact, we're closing on a 10 unit in Florida this Friday that we had to pay all cash for. And this is all cash from the guys buying it. And we're going to, we're going to uh, stabilize it and then refi out of it. Pretty much the burst strategy on it. This is mm -hmm. the first time I've ever made an all cash offer. And it sounded a lot like what everybody is having to do to win the bids. And it was yep. all cash. Pretty, we get one walkthrough, all cash over asking no contingencies closing in seven days. My head was on fire when I sent that, that offer out. Cause I'm like, this is so it's ridiculous, but yeah. Uh, the thing that I learned is that having that capital, even though it was like at the max of our ability to, 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 to purchase it all cash, the four guys that are in it, um, having that cash lined up on the front end just gives you so much agility to be able mm -hmm. to quickly close and win bids, especially in today's environment where it, nobody, there's so many cash, even the seller said, they said, there's so many cash buyers out there. I'm not taking any offers that have a financing contingency. And I was like, Jesus, man, like, okay, all right. And we sent it, we sent our highest and best. And for the first time, it was like, this is no kidding, our highest and best, bro. Like, this isn't what we think we can get the property for the least. No, this is this is exactly what we can pay. And uh, maybe we were 20 or 30 grand over the next offer. But based on the numbers and the market, it works for us. So we, <laughs> we had to pull the trigger so we can get one. Uh, but yeah, so I if, if you could help me out in understanding uh, somebody approaches you for a loan, what do they need to have a track record of some sort? Do they need to have a project already lined up or do they come to you and say, Hey, this is what I do. This is what I look for. Can we get pre-approval? And that way I have the ability to close on something quickly. I would say it works equally well in both ways. So kind of the blessing and the curse of private lending is its flexibility. So the way I do something isn't necessarily reflective of the way every private lender out there is going to do something. Um, but generally, it's a relationship business. It's not going to be something where you like dial up a 1-800 number and, hey, what's your rates for me? It's, it's very much a relationship business. So for example, I only work with usually three or four investors here in my local market. And they keep me plenty busy with the capital. If I had more capital, I'd, I'd give them more because they have more projects than I can fund. And they're just good, solid investors. But all of those investors came to me, not even really seeking capital, just, hey, I'm a local investor in the community. I'm out looking to meet other investors in this particular community. They happen to all have some affiliation with the military. So we kind of have that, that tie as well. Um, and then it just kind of naturally evolved to, hey, I'm looking to purchase this, you know, single family home. You know, are you interested in lending on a single family home? Like, yeah, where is it? No, oh, it's this part of town. You know, I'm going to hold it for a burr. Now nah, I'm not really comfortable being in a longer term, you know, process, you know, project, especially during COVID, the way the, the lending standards have been for non-owner occupied property. Um, so if you, but if you come up with something that you're going to turn around and sell, then sure, let's have that conversation. So it really, in my opinion, it starts with building that relationship and finding out what they actually fund 
And then if that's something that you routinely go after, you can let them know and, you know, stay on their radar and say, Hey, you know, I'm out looking for a deal actively. I'm expected to have one in, you know, two to three weeks. If I do, you know, can I kind of rely on you to provide the capital? Are we good? You know, you can have those conversations. Um, some private lenders, you know, might not do that, but I think for the most part, most of the private lenders that I personally know, they are very much in that relationship model. So they would rather hold on to the capital and kind of allocate it for people that they know, like, and trust versus, you know, they just want the next opportunity to get it out the door and earning interest. Yeah, I, I'm 100% of that mindset. I like to do business with people that I like. In fact, a, a broker, uh, an agent, a lender, if I don't like them, if I don't enjoy a conversation with them, I'm not. I don't, I don't want to do business with it. It's just, I, I will go yeah. with a higher price person that makes my day more enjoyable than I will for the cheapest person is just a pain in the butt. Um, and, and, and it's true. Like my, my current agent uh, in Panama city, Florida, I, I call it like, if there's a deal that comes on the market, I'll see it within 10 seconds and I'll call him and I'll give him crap about not sending it to me. He's like, I don't even know it's on the market. I'm like, bro, why am I doing your job right now? <laughs> but at the end of the day, when it comes down to, uh, who's going to have my back, like, I know that that guy's got my best interest in mind every time there's, there's no doubt about it. So I'm a hundred percent that mindset. One thing that I'm learning right now that I hundred percent didn't know was that it sounds like lending is like just as local as anything in real estate. I thought it was more of like a nation, a national thing uh, where, Hey, I've got money to lend. I'm looking for people to lend it to. I've talked to a couple of guys out here in California and they seem to be a bit more national, probably because they realize that lending in California is not quite as easy. So they've had to be uh, trained to finding people like in Texas and Florida and some of the hotter markets. Um, doesn't mean that that's translated into a loan yet, but I'm building the relationships with them and kind of introducing them to my style of investing, which I will say uh, a lot of lenders are not really into, like I've been buying, uh, trying to buy multiple of these smaller boutique style hotels. Uh, we closed on one in June and we were under contract for one that ended up, the lending fell through uh, because of a hurricane actually. Hurricanes have ruined a lot of things lately for me. Um, but the, the guy that I was talking to the other day, he's a, he's a local to California. He's a lender and he's, he sounds like a surfer. He's like, Ramsey, what do you got going on, man? Like, like, but, but I send him stuff and he's like, man, you have an affinity for trying to buy these little motels, man. I was like, yeah, I like them. He's like, well, I don't, I don't we could talk to, some, you know, someone who does like, but, and I would also say some of that ambiguity you're seeing is kind of the mismatch in terminology. So when I say private lender, I'm talking about individuals, you know, maybe they lend out of an, an entity like an LLC, but for the most part, they're lending either their own capital or capital that they directly have some control over. So when you're yeah. talking to a private lender, in my eyes, you're talking to someone who's the processor, the underwriter, the decision maker, they're the ones cutting the checks. Yeah. Now, since private money seems to have that really positive connotation, and then hard money tends to have that kind of negative connotation, what I'm seeing more and more is a lot of people that are effectively hard money lenders, but they're calling themselves private money. And so what you're seeing is these business entities that they either have potentially a warehouse line of credit with a big bank, they have some sort of agreement for the loans to be purchased through maybe some hedge fund out of New York. 
maybe they're doing white label funding. So they're actually officially kind of a fancy broker for, you know, some other like Pierce Street, for example, but they're calling themselves private money, but they in reality are more operating more, their business model is 100% a hard money lender. Whereas through private lenders, it's their capital or capital they have control over. And it sounds like a really small distinction, but downstream, it has very large implications. So in your case, you've already experienced some of them. So private lenders tend to have more flexibility. So if a deal doesn't check all the particular boxes, you know, you don't have a 680 credit score. It's not at 65 ARB. It's too old. It's too new. You know, it's made of wood, whatever the, whatever their kind of parameters are, since they are the ones turning around and selling the loan, or maybe they got that warehouse line of credit underneath these guidelines that say, thou shall only lend out our money to these types of borrowers for these types of properties in these types of states. If you as a borrower don't check all those boxes, then they can't do the loan. Mm. Whereas when you're talking to a private lender, in my eyes, what I call a private lender, um, you have that more relationship. So if it doesn't check all the boxes, you can almost kind of fall back on that relationship and go, look, you know, we've done 10 of these before together. What's your hesitation about this one deal? And you say, oh, well, you know, everything you've done up to this point has been 10 units and this is 25. I don't know how you're going to handle doubling the units, you know, in one particular project. That's what I'm a little, you know what I mean? So you, that flexibility can actually work for you in those cases when you're talking to people that are true private lenders. Yeah, it's your money. So you get to decide what risk you're going to take, right? So yeah. if, 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 if that's where the relationships have to come into play, because if you trust that person can make it, then you can lend them that money because it's your risk to assume but you can't assume that risk. I'm good. So what you're saying about private money, it sounds like somebody who's got an amazing line of credit or a track record and they can go to a bank and, and pull out a big line of credit at 4% and turn around and lend at 8%. Is that essentially what's happening? That's essentially what's happening. If it, or they're tapping into like a HELOC, maybe they're loaning out of a four or a, a, you know, a IRA, self-directed IRA. So they're using retirement money. Um, so obviously, in that case, they might be an active investor, but you can't actively invest in your own deals. So they'll be an active investor, but they'll use the IRA money to lend out to other active investors. So they're also private lending as well. So all of the loans that you're given is 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 you you and your husband's private capital. So you yes. have the ability, you have the flexibility to make decisions on what you do and don't want to do. It doesn't really matter as long as it meets your criteria. Correct? Yes. And you guys have really started diving into this deep since COVID kicked off or how long have you been doing it? I would say off and on for probably over the span of about 10 years, we would just do, you know, maybe one a year, maybe one every other year. It just mattered where we were stationed and who we knew while we were stationed there. Um, Cause obviously trying to do a private money loan for a first lien position in San Diego, when we were stationed there, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're not buying anything in San Diego for under about 700,000. So that was, you know, back then, especially that was way out of our, our ability to lend in that particular market. So while we were stationed there, we just didn't do any. Um, but when COVID came about and we started seeing this massive need for true private money, because all those hard money lenders, their capital is dictated by a third party entity, not them. Okay. So at any point, those hard, the reason they had to shut their doors is because their warehouse lines of credit closed. The hedge funds, you know, there was just so much uncertainty with where the economy was going to be going, where we're going to be 
you know, are we heading towards a precipice in real estate because the economy is going to tank? I mean, GDP was down, you know, 33% in one quarter kind of thing. So if you don't have, if you're not talking to the decision maker about the capital and it's not their capital to lend, that's the ramifications further downstream that you see as a borrower when you're talking about the difference between private money and what I would call hard money. Good use of the word precipice, by the way. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed by your impressivist. <laughs> well, okay. So, so um, let me ask you this. When, when interest rates started to drop for, uh, you know, like once, once things started coming, coming around, interest rates dropped substantially. So the cost of money is really cheap right now. Has that affected your business and what you're able to lend out? Or you have your criteria and people still um, meet it? Because we are basically not direct competitors with the conventional lending standards, we, we've seen nothing but increased demand for private capital. Um, because those interest rates that you're talking about that are tied to, you know, LIBOR or some T-bill index or something like that, that's for, you know, large conventional lending standards. Those are owner-occupied homes, you know, usually, um, you know, those are mom and pop moving in, living there type of properties. Okay. Most private lenders, I can't, I personally can't think of a single one that does, but they do not lend on owner-occupied property because it's a whole separate bank of rules and regulations for owner-occupied property versus investment property. So when you're talking about going to the bank and getting those, you know, two percent loans, chances are that's going to be, you know, something that's owner-occupied. Even the commercial side is seeing, you know, high threes, low fours, but those tend to be longer loans. They have to be for stabilized assets unless you're doing something like a, a bridge loan. But most private money is going to be shorter term. For example, my loans are usually only out four to six months. The average is going to be anywhere between, I'd say, eight and 12 months. Occasionally, you'll come across somebody who will do, you know, 18 months, you know, something like that for a property that needs massive renovation. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's two completely different products in the marketplace. So, whatever conventional lending is doing, tends to not have too much of a bearing on what private money is doing. Okay. Yeah. It's two different product lines essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And I guess, I guess in the fix and flip world, interest rates being low means that you are in more demand because people are willing to fix and flip because they can sell the houses really quickly. Right. So I guess it's, it's helped you quite a bit. That makes perfect sense. Well, I want to, I want to switch and, and, and talk about if I'm interested in being a note investor or a private lender, right. Uh, what would you say would would be how much how much capital you need to have in the bank to get started? Realistically, you could probably start with thirty to fifty thousand. There are still markets in the United States where you could be in a first lien position. You know, Indianapolis is a great example of where Jaspreet uh, invests. You could get a first lien there for fifty thousand dollars. You know, so it really doesn't have to be something where you start with you know half a million dollars. It just really depends on what your risk tolerance is. So if you are not comfortable investing out of your local area, you could uh, venture into something that's called gap funding or second lien position. Obviously there's going to be more risk, so I wouldn't necessarily start there, yeah. but it is, it is a possibility. I like to let people know their options and then they can make their decisions based on their you know, preferences and risk tolerance, but you could potentially start with there. And you don't even necessarily have to be solely in the second lien position. You could potentially do something where you're a JV partner with somebody and you're the capital partner and they are the you know, more active side of the equation where they're managing the contractors, for example, if you're funding a fix and flip. 
So you could start easily, I think, with $50,000 and then gain access to credit, uh, you know, business lines of credit, maybe a HELOC, you know, something like that. You can start talking with friends and family. If, you know, basically you could do arbitrage, you know, say, hey, this is what I'm doing. If I pay you 7% and then you're going to turn around and charge other people 12 or 16%, you know, for that money, you know, you're making that difference in that yield spread. Okay. Okay. And so if, if you have the capital to get started, I'm guessing the first place, pick your market, right. And then get your uh, legal paperwork set up for that area to make sure that you're able to lend legally. Correct. Yeah. How do you, how do you find people that, that one that are doing it and two that, that you trust to lend money to? It's really going back to that relationship building. So for example, if you know you want to lend in a specific market and you want to lend on these specific types of properties, then, you know, especially now that you're starting to see more events in person, if that uh, property is or that community is local to you, just going to a local RIA meeting and just, you know, talking to people, you know, who's doing fix and flips in, in this particular market, you know, who's doing, you know, if, if you have a part of town, for example, you know, who's doing fix and flips on the west side, you know, and just start hearing and listening to the buzz, do more listening than talking at these RIA meetings and you'll gain a wealth of information um, and just start talking to people. Real estate has the benefit of having kind of what I call the real estate underground. It's similar to the Cajun underground since you're from Louisiana uh -huh. where word spreads like wildfire. It's a small community. So, you know, people, your reputation is your business in a lot of places. If you, especially if you are investing in a small local market, so if you start hearing kind of the same thing about people, you know, oh yeah, you know, this person screwed a, a past partner out of money or, you know, they moved into a rental and then declared bankruptcy, you know, so all these, all Ooh, these little things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, Can't you know, doing your, that. <laughs> your reputation really gets around. So you can always start asking people. I actually ask borrowers for professional references. And then I talk to those professional references and then I go at the next step and I ask those references for other people who have done business with my potential borrower. And okay. that, that second tier of people is really where you tend to get the greatest amount of information, you know, more accurate information, shall we say. Okay. So, uh, I've got, I've got my $50,000. I want to lend it out to a fix and flipper. I've gone and identified my market. I've, I'm legal. Uh, establish a relationship with this person. You said you typically do your money is out for four to six months, correct? Yes. All right. So I'm guessing you have like a a, a promissory note template or a, a loan uh, application process. Th these this is what part of the legal side was getting set up. Um, you want your money out four to six months. Do you typically see or do? Um, do you charge points up front? Do you do early payment penalties? What's your average interest rate? Is that based on, I know I'm asking a lot of questions. Is that based on investor experience? Does it fluctuate based on the risk that you do? Like kind of walk me through how you look at this and how you make that decision. So I look at this more as a team effort. I'm a real estate investor, just like they are a real estate investor. So I need a return and they also need a return. So for example, since I fund fix and flips, Anybody who's ever done a fix and flip will tell you, you know, you are hemorrhaging money for the first couple months you own that fix and flip. 
So what I do is I say, okay, you know, since the loan is such a short period of time, because I have, I don't fund anything that needs massive renovation, especially during COVID, because they've had such a problem with supply chain issues and just backlog of materials. Um, so if the loan's so short, what I'll do is I'll just up the interest rate a couple points, and then you can pay everything at the payoff instead of making monthly payments kind of as we go. I have yet to have a borrower turn that down because it's solving a problem for them. It's, you know, stopping a little bit of the hemorrhaging each month, but at the same time, you know, it's, I have that faith in that person because we've established that relationship that, you know, if they get off the rails, I'm very forward with my communication expectations when I start talking to a borrower. And I think that's something a lot of borrowers and maybe newer private lenders don't really have a conversation about like, I want to have weekly updates during renovations. I would like to see pictures. I want to see, I want to know when the property hits the market in MLS. I want to know when it's under contract. I want to know when you're supposed to be roughly closing, like keep me up to date on what's going on on the property. And it's fine. You know, yeah, I understand people hit snags, you know, roofing material is, you know, backlogged or, you know, getting lumber has been a problem, you know, whatever it is, just be upfront with me and say, Hey, the project's two weeks behind and here's the reason why. So if you have that, very clear expectation. You don't necessarily, in my eyes, need to rely on that like monthly payment to come in for you know that reassurance that, hey, this loan is performing because it's local to me. If I wanted to, I could drive by the property and take a tour. You know, I don't want to because I don't want to be that active, but I could. No. Um, you know, I, I talk to the borrowers, you know, on a weekly basis. We probably see each other at virtual networking events or we'll see each other at live events now that they're starting to happen again. So it's just, it's a completely different relationship. It's almost like partnering with someone, but you're not on title with the property. Okay. So it's not like you owe me money fool. It's all right. Let's yeah. I'll, I'll fund it. You get your money based on what it sells for. I get my money based on a rate that we agree on, but yep. the pro, the, in either way, both of you are unsuccessful if the project doesn't get finished. Correct. So exactly. I, I'm pretty sure the last thing you want is to have to recoup a house that's mid flip. Right. So, yeah, no. <laughs> so, so you said four to six months, you don't make them, you don't, you don't make your uh, borrowers pay any monthly payments. It's all handled at the close. So that works for them because that, you know, when you say at close, is that at the sale of the property or Okay. So you yeah, could, I, if, on, I only fund fix and flips. So essentially their retail buyer is paying their interest for them. Yeah. Okay. So for them, it's, it's very low risk. So long as the project is successful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. And so they, so there's no, uh, what interest rates are you typically like, what's the range that you're charging? I would say um, in general, Private lending is going to be anywhere between 8% and honestly 20%. If you're in a second lien, you know, it's very, it's very common to see something in the teens up into the 20% if you're in a, if you're lending in the gap funding, you know, position in that second lien position. Uh, points generally range anywhere from I've seen zero to five. I think two is pretty typical. Okay. And so can you explain what you mean? Like what, what's the scenario which somebody would need the second lien and why would they go private money for it? Yeah. So uh, I think this is going to become a, even more of an issue moving forward during COVID because forbearance, you know, that started about a year ago, usually is only about 12 months long. So uh, a common situation where someone would need a second lien for investment property that they are fixing and flipping would be if they took that property subject to from the seller 
you know, the original conventional mortgage holder, you know, seller. And then they want funds for, obviously there's enough equity in the deal to do this, but they want funds for renovations, maybe holding costs for that first lien, whatever it happens to be. And then they have capital available to them to do that renovation on that property, but they didn't necessarily have to do any of the qualifying for the first mortgage. There are some hard money lenders that will allow a junior lien behind them, but they're kind of far and few between. So we, if, if anybody's considering doing second mortgage, um, they really need to get a really good idea of who that first lien holder is. You know, do they allow second mortgages in the first place? Because technically in some places, I've seen some notes from a hard money lender where if the borrower takes out a second mortgage, they're technically in default. So they could foreclose on that property even if the, the property's you know, fully paid for every month, but because the borrower didn't stick to the terms of the promissory note, they're technically in default. They can call it due on them, huh? Yep. Dang. Okay, so you said uh, the, when, you, when you loan, do you lend for renovation expenses as well? Yes. Okay, and, and then, do, do you have a draw program or like how, to, how, to, how do you manage all of that? I would say the, the first loan, is what I tell borrowers is the first loan is going to be the most complicated and the most expensive. But then once we have established kind of that rapport, we know what's going on, we know how to work with each other, then it gets subsequently easier. But what most private lenders do, if they do lend on renovations, they do what I call as a refund draw model. So the investor is gonna go out and put on a roof, you know, $7,000 for a roof, maybe $2,000 for some other stuff. They are going to supply a paid invoice, a mechanics lien waiver, and say, look, I put on a roof and I did these $2,000 worth of this other stuff. And then the lender will basically contact the title company where the loan was closed and say, okay, I'm authorizing to, you know, to release you know, $9,000 to the um, borrower. And basically all the funds are held or transferred through escrow. So they are not going to closing. And if they have a second lien, for example, they're not going to closing and then leaving closing with a $50,000 check because there's nothing that stops them from just having the greatest weekend of their life in Vegas with my $50,000 check. Whereas if you do a refund draw model, you have a little bit more control because you're not going to be upside down in that property. So if there's you know, $50,000 kind of being held at the title company, and they're getting mm -hmm. refunded as the work is progressing, then theoretically you're keeping that equity buffer as the property's improved. So do they need to have a credit line with, with uh, material vendors up front, or is it something they, they basically, this is, this is common practice. They go to like, say it's home Depot and say, this is what I need. This is what we did. This is who's going to pay for this. And uh, like, how, how does that work where they get the stuff up front and then you pay for it? They can do anything from a credit card to, you know, they might have a certain amount of capital. So, for example, I had one borrower that kind of recycled the same $10,000. So they would start off the project with their $10,000 order of supplies and materials. You know, once the materials were installed, you know, like kitchen cabinets, for example, is usually what the first thing to go in. Um, so they would order the kitchen cabinets, order the countertops. Once those were installed and put in, and then obviously the invoices are paid and we see the paid invoices. Then we say, okay, title company release $10,000 to borrower. And then he goes and recycles that $10,000 again and just kind of does the project in stages. That makes perfect sense. And is there any flexibility with that as like, uh, 
if 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 like you said the first one's going to be complicated but as it goes on somebody you know and trust will, will you increase that amount that they're able to draw from and recycle oh yeah like i've i've done loans um in the second lien position you know it's like their third loan from me and i'll just give them all the capital up front and i'm like you know we have a history you have your own gc crew you know you get the projects done in a in a short period of time just me having that you know, draw process does nothing but slow them down. Yeah, and yeah. we have a successful history of it, then sure, you know, here, it's, it's still going through closing, it's still going through a title company, we're still getting, you know, title insurance, lenders title insurance on everything. It's, it's still quick and easy. And they will leave closing with a check. But it's something where we've established that relationship, we have a history of working together, they have a track record of being successful and, you know, managing my capital in their project. How quick does it take you to make a decision on whether or not you're going to lend to somebody on the first time and then and then times after that? Um I'm a pretty slow decision maker. Like I'm I I'm happy to talk to people and get to know them, but I really want that kind of relationship established. Like I'm going to Facebook stalk you. I'm going <laughs> to you know, I'm going to call three people, you provide me with three professional references, I'm going to call them and have a nice conversation with them and then I'm going to ask them for, you know, hey, do you happen to know anybody else that's worked with this individual, you know, on some previous projects? I'd love to talk to them. And so I need some level of comfort because but you know, at the end of the day, if I'm wiring you $150,000, I need some sort of assurance that you're, you know, a stand-up individual. You're gonna, you know, you have some level of self-accountability that you're gonna communicate, you know, routinely and openly with me. And I don't think you can get that from an initial, you know, one-hour phone call. Yeah, I agree. So what's the what's the quickest turnaround you've had if you if you had to throw a number out there? Uh we had a week because we had a we had a borrower where his contract fell or his lending fell through he had a hard money lender kind of lined up and then at the last minute the lender's like no there's this one piece of criteria that we don't we don't like and we won't lend on it and his contract is expiring so we turned around and and got the job done in about a week a little less than a week but he already had title usually the the hold up tends to be title because we obviously have to make sure we have to look at the title report make sure title's clear and that there's nothing there that's, you know, we don't like some exception, you know, there's not some massive, you know, the neighbor's garage isn't half built on the property, you know, stuff like that, that's going to show up in title, any encroachments, exceptions, things like that. So in most cases, title tends to be the thing that slows stuff down. That's, that's what's slowing us down right now, because we had a seven day close, but the title company is, uh, you know, going to take longer than that. So yeah, luckily on this in particular property, we've got what seems like a good seller who wants to get paid. I've, I've had bad sellers in the past who uh, we were two weeks from actually being able to close. The delays were because the set, like the seller got, he was his own road bumps, speed bumps, uh, like kicked our, kicked our inspector off of the roof mid inspection. Like I'm, I'm telling you crazy. Um, and then what we, what we found out though, is the contract end date is the contract end date, regardless of what the due diligence timeline is. So when we came to, Hey, the bank has agreed to close in two weeks. The seller said, I'm not waiting another two weeks. Guess what? Project property still on the market today, because I'm guessing he gets in his own way with everybody. And so I started a, uh, with my brother and, uh, another guy who's a partner with me in real estate, a baseball business. 
uh, where we throw baseball tournaments in the Southeast. And because my brother was the, the head name on it and, and, uh, my wife, um, and our partner, Brandon, I was able to go on the weekends and like run tournaments with them and make, make a pretty good amount of cash, but nobody ever really knew what I was doing. They just assumed I was going back to Louisiana, but now like, I said, screw it, dude. What are they going to do to me? I got my face all over the internet. I started putting my name out. Like if they decide that, that, uh, that, that, that stuff is my priority. Like I still go to work every day. So it's not, but since putting my name out there and I've noticed you've got like four and a half thousand members in your Facebook group. Like that's, that's pretty impressive. I, uh, the reason I got this hotel brought to me was because the people that I grew up, like this girl was in my wedding, had no clue I was investing in real estate but I put a, a Facebook page just pretty much had like some picture that I didn't even own of some apartment complex I've never seen and said, uh, I invest in apartment complexes. Uh, if you're interested, learn more, let me know. Well, she hits me up and she's like, I don't have an apartment complex, but my mom really wants to sell her hotel. And I'm like, I like hotels. <laughs> so, 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 but because uh, they, they brought that to me off market, um, a true off market deal, which doesn't, doesn't happen as much as people like to act like it does, uh, was able to work with them, no real estate agents involved. So saved e each of us a good amount of money. And, uh, she's like happy to sell it to me. Cause she wanted, you know, you, you tell, they put a lot of their heart into that place. They want somebody who's going to buy it and keep it going. Cause she lives a couple blocks from the place. So for her to see it every day. She didn't want to sell it. Somebody was going to turn it back into a bank or a restaurant or something that was important to her. Uh, she's actually, I think her, her husband, her husband passed. That's why she's selling it. But I think they were like the mayor of this little bitty town that it's in Lake Arthur, right? <laughs> like, like she wanted to see, it, you know, it, it'd be a legacy. And I said, I'll, I'll do that. I'll keep it what it is because it's working. So. No, oh, exactly. And it's unique and it's, it's awesome looking. Yeah. And it's starting a Facebook group as well. Um, this is just, a, you know, we got 220 something members, but I wanted to start a podcast. And the only reason I started a podcast was to meet people like you. I, I, however many listeners I get, I don't care, right? I, I, that's not the priority. The priority is, is having a venue for us to have, you know, chats, get to know each other, learn from each other, and then have a way of recording it so I can, you know, for my own knowledge, but I might as well share it with other people. Um, but since starting that Facebook group, because whenever I wanted to get on podcast to get my name out there, I was feeling like I was having to sell myself to everybody. Like, hey, my name's Ramsey. Here's my bio. Please have me as a guest. Ever since I started the Facebook group, it's like people are like, hey, can I be on your show? <laughs> show? We haven't even posted our first. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I paid like 90 bucks for this logo. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the group that I have, started 100% as a fluke. Um, really? So during, during COVID, you know, the nice thing about private lending is it's fairly passive. So I was investing in real estate, but, you know, stuck home during COVID. And as an extrovert stuck inside, you get stir crazy very quickly. And so I went out looking for community. And there's Facebook groups for landlords, and there's Facebook groups for short-term rentals, and there's Facebook groups for burring. But every single group I joined that had something to do with private lending, private money, or hard money lending was basically a place for scams and spam. It yeah. wasn't <laughs> a legit educational group. And I was joking around with somebody here locally, and I was like, you know, I was like, you know, this 
I can't believe this. There's no group out there like this. Like I really, there's got to be other people doing this. And they said, why don't you just start your own? And I'm like, I'm a chemistry professor. What do I know about like marketing and graphic design and, you know, CRM management and all this. And I'm like, yeah, just start it. So I did. And then about a week later, I had a hundred people in it. I was like, oh crap. Now I have to do something with this. And the group's not even a year old yet. And it's just been, it just took off like wildfire and it just kind of became its own life, its own full-time job. And I've met some just absolutely amazing people through it. And I know people who have met lenders, like active investors who have met lenders through the group. I've met lenders from all over the country in the group. You know, I know an investor, she lives in Australia, but she invests in Ohio and she's hmm. a private lender. You know, she's a U.S. citizen living in Australia, but invests in Ohio because that's her market. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's, it's a type of investing that it suits a certain type of personality. If you like having that geographical freedom, that time freedom, you're collaborative and, you know, accountable, then this might be the way of investing for you. I like, so I like your marketing. I think it's like your, uh, your poster. I think we have a, the similar style and color preferences. All, like everything of, of mine is purple, purple green, and gold. Yeah. <laughs> Mardi Gras. Yeah, there you go. That's the only colors that matter. Purple, <laughs> green, and gold. And everybody, if you ever see the logo for my business, it almost looks like a Mardi Gras mask. Actually, tear my uh, little, I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. It's, oh yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, little. <laughs> it's purple, green, and gold. It's got a little house and it's the infinity symbol. And the graphic designer I hired, she's like, "These are just like the hardest colors to get to go together." And I'm like, "Really? They're not. You're just not where yeah. you're not from where I'm from. Like that's literally on everything where I'm from. So just let it make it purple, green, and gold." <laughs> yeah, people've been people've been building floats out of that and tossing beads out of that for ages. It'll work. It'll right? work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So I, and I just joined the group the other day and, uh, I, I, I do what you're saying is a hundred percent true because I actually have a, a go-to gif now that the, is that what they're called? Gifts that yeah. whenever I see a lender, it starts out 5%, um, 5%, hundred percent financing, 5% interest, blah, blah, blah. I like, I, I prime that thing up. Oh man, this is a fraud. And I'll go onto their Facebook page and I'll scroll down. And in the first few, it'll look like a, a picture of some American looking guy. And then yep. the next thing will be a, a couple posts about real estate. But then you go to their likes and it's like, I checked into Nigeria and Sudan and all these. I'm like, you're a, no, this is not true. Like, <laughs> And there will be people dropping their emails in there like, hit yes. me up, hit me up, hit me up. So that's every every large multifamily Facebook group. I've seen that, and and I try and call them out and get the admins to remove them because uh, I've, I've I've not my wife has been scammed over the internet before. We lost like four thousand dollars because of, right when the internet I guess was coming uh, coming out, there was somebody who hit us up, and we were gullible to a uh, you know some overseas internet scam. And I'm now on high alert. Like you ain't getting me, dude. <laughs> Unless I'm on a face-to-face -face call with you and I can see you, uh, you ain't get a dollar out of me. So, I mean, I guess it, it happens, and that's part of the problem I think with private lending is there's not a lot of education out there on either side, on the borrower side or the lender side. Because you, you think about bigger pockets, you know how big bigger pockets is. They have books, you know, dedicated, get your first apartment building in 30 days. Here's how to be a landlord. They have books on, you know, how to price out your scope of work for a rehab. But anytime private lending's mentioned, 
It's go find a private lender to fund your deals. And then nothing, like there's nothing past that point. So, and there's not even really any great books, you know, out there about private lending, just because there's so many nuances and state specific laws. It's really hard to write, you know, kind of that universal how to go to manual for something like this. But originally the intention of the group was to be just for private lenders. But when I started talking with more active investors like yourself, I kept hearing that same story. They didn't know that, you know, what scams look like. They didn't know how to have a conversation with a private lender. They didn't know what the expectations were for a private lender. I mean, still routinely to this day, I get random messages on Facebook Messenger. Hey, what's your rates? Dude, it doesn't work like that. That's, you know, that's not what private lending is at all. So we opened the group to active investors and a lot of active investors have actually, you know, have interest in doing this kind of as a side hustle. You know, like I mentioned with the self-directed IRAs and, you know, it's been a just really great kind of mixing pot of, you know, when we have those daily discussions, we have the active investor mindset present as well, because they'll, they'll post on there. Hey, as a borrower, this is what I see, or this is what I think, or this is what I'd like, or this is what I'd prefer. So the discussion is actually almost kind of a peek behind the curtain for active investors to say, Hey, this is what private capital is looking for. This is what they're saying. This is what they need. This is what they want to see. And then they also get a, a voice to say, hey, look, as a, as a borrower, this is what I don't like. This is what I do like. Or why do you guys do this? Or why do you guys require draws? You know, all of this. Why do you make draws so difficult? You know, all of these things. You can start that open line of communication between borrower and lender. And I think everybody then has more realistic expectations of the relationship moving forward. So is, is, is everything negotiable when it comes to private lending? I would say for the most part, it's negotiable. I mean, the funny thing, I, that's how the, the whole like, hey, what's your rates really irks me. That's like my number one thing that people do in, in lending that just irks me when they contact me. Because there are so many other terms that could be more beneficial to you as a borrower other than interest rate. So, for example, going back to our conversation about, you know, just paying uh, the interest at the end when you sell the property. So if you're talking about, say, even a $50,000 loan, you know, if you had a if you did a a second mortgage with me, a $50,000 loan, the difference over six months on a $50,000 loan between paying 10 percent and 12 percent is next to nothing. Yeah. But they're going to sit there and they're going to shop around for that cheapest interest rate. But they might get another lender that say, oh, yeah, we'll do 10%, but it's going to be five points up front. It's going to be a $600 processing fee, and it's going to be a $300 underwriting fee. But they're happy paying their 10%, whereas if they had built a relationship with me and had a conversation and said, look, I'm going to be you know, 12 or 14% for a second lien, but here's what I'm willing to do. You know, We can put in an extension. We can do this. We can do that. We can do no payments that ultimately might end up being far better a loan product for them and their situation, but they're full, solely focused on the interest rate. They're not looking at the other terms, you know, the payment frequency, you know, when it's due, how easy or hard would it be to extend, you know, all these different variables that can be, you know, more beneficial to them in the long run, but they're so focused on that. What's your rate? What's your rate? What's your rate thing? And that makes sense. So I, I, a quick question for you, or let me, let me break this down for anybody who is listening to this, that's kind of unfamiliar with some of the terminology. One point up front is essentially 1% of the loan that gets paid regardless of when you pay it back. 
is that another word for early payment penalty or is that just essentially, I don't care if you pay it back uh, tomorrow or you pay it back at the end, I've got to make at least this much percent over the course of the loan plus the interest. Or is that, is that kind of the checks and balances for how long, like your, I guess your payment for doing the loan, going through all the paperwork and everything like that. And then the longevity of the loan, how long your money is out, the, the interest rate is what you feel comfortable lending at, but that up, those upfront points kind of make sure that you make some money in the loan regardless when they pay it back. Am, am I correct in saying that? Um, so there's going to be different, different vocabulary is going to be for different things. So origination points are paid usually at the origination of the loan. So at closing, the borrower is bringing you know, 2% of the loan amount to the closing table just for the origination. A lot of times origination goes to pay for the lent. If you want to think about it from terms of goods and services exchanging hands, the origination points are going to be paying for the lender's time in evaluating the deal, you know, wire funds, um, you know, all the all the kind of due diligence process, me making phone calls to your professional references, all of that is basically paying for that's how I would view it is paying for my time and doing all of that. Okay. As far as uh, early prepayment penalty, that's a little bit more, you know, what I usually see on the private capital side is they will say a guaranteed interest uh, of three months. So no matter when you pay off the loan, the payoff statement is going to require or is going to include at least three months of interest has been paid. Okay. So that's usually what I usually see is some sort of guaranteed interest, you know, in terms of months or potentially just a flat. You know, if it's a really small loan like Jaspreet's market, a lot of his loans are on the small side. So 1%, you know, of $50,000 is 500 bucks. You know, yeah. he's not going to roll out of bed for 500 bucks. So, yeah. you know, and in that case, it might just be a flat. This is what it's going to take in order to make this loan work for me because the amount of risk I'm taking on as the lender, dishing out five, you know, $50,000 is more than $500 in my eyes. So they might have some other arrangement that way. Okay. And that's, I'm guessing the smaller the loan, the, 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 you see more points, higher, higher interest, stuff like that. The longer the loan, uh, not longer, the higher the loan, the longer the pro the loan is out, you could potentially negotiate down, uh, interest rates, stuff like that, because now there's a longevity to it. It's not just some quick turnaround. Is that, is that kind of how the, a lender would look at things as far as fluctuating the terms and negotiate, negotiating the, the, the deal? I would say for most lenders, it really boils down to experience and their relationship with that borrower and also lien position. So obviously, if you're in a first lien, that's less risky. So it's going to be a lower interest rate versus being in a second lien position. That's always going to be a higher interest rate. So I would say it really boils down to what is their experience level with doing the type of project you're funding. So for example, if someone comes to me and says, oh, yeah, I have five rental units. And now they're they're here trying to buy this property that they're going to fix and flip, you know, five rental units. When you start digging in, if they bought all five of those as a turnkey rental, they have zero rehab experience, even though on paper, you know, yeah, they're a real estate investor. Yeah, they own investment property, but they've never done a rehab. So for me, that's far riskier, even though kind of on paper, they have, quote unquote, experience. So it really boils down to what is their experience in the type of project you are funding? Now, if a team comes to you uh, and there's a guy with like, say, say that 
that person wants to get into fix and flips, would it be advisable to them to get with a general contractor or somebody who has done fix and flips in the past? Now we're part of a team to buy down the risk in your eyes. Yes. As long as those individuals are willing to personally guarantee on the loan, then absolutely. We've had a situation where a borrower um, was very inexperienced in doing fix and flips, new to this area, new to this market, but they had an advisor who was someone I personally trusted. That's actually how we connected. And they were willing to sign on the dotted line for that particular borrower. And we said, okay, sure. You know, if, if we have faith in this individual and his advisor, and we've done loans with his advisor before, but you know, this new kid, you know, new kids coming in town and, and trying this, but he's willing to sign on the dotted line for this new kid. Then to me, that speaks volumes. So again, going back to building those relationships in whatever market you want to work in is just vital. That makes sense. That's kind of like a uh, like a sponsor on a syndication where mm-hmm. they, they might not have equity in or they might not be putting any of their money in, end up with some equity just because their name goes on goes on the deal in which uh, lenders will trust their experiences. And now your name's on the, the loan. So if things go south, you're, uh, you're the guy who has to fix it. So that makes, yep. that makes perfect sense. Okay. So what, what else, uh, what, what else you got outside of lending that you guys do in real estate? Do you have rental properties? Do you, do you look at multifamily short-term rentals? Uh, tell me a little bit about your real estate experience. We do uh, short-term rentals. So I do co-hosting and then we also own short-term rentals. And then I am also part of a team that's standing up a regulation A-plus fund to uh, help military members, both, both, both veterans, active duty, and their families invest in multifamily real estate. And then we are also using that fund to partner with either veteran or active duty operators in the multifamily space to kind of provide capital and advisement and kind of oversight for their projects as well. Ooh, I'm an active duty military guy who's I know. Look at that synergy. (laughs) Oh man. Oh man. Uh, I thought you would like that. (laughs) A a fund. uh, Cause this is something that the guys I went and visited in Virginia, Virginia, Jonathan Vadim are doing is putting together a fund. One of the things that kind of scared me about a fund and maybe you can help me understand it a little bit better was if somebody, let's let's just say uh, Joe Schmo military guy uh, has 20 grand and he he wants to put it to work and you've got this fund and you're the fund manager and he goes to the fund and the fund says we can earn you an average of like six percent return right and he says okay well that's a lot better than i can get in the savings account it's better than the tsp's doing whatever it is and he invests now if you're the fund manager just getting started and you don't have any properties how how are you paying that six percent back to those folks the moment that they pay into it or are you do you have to have a project lined up that you are now funding that pays six percent back last question i like to, i don't know why i do this i throw like three questions out there but i like to let you just just go off on it what if somebody just invests like a million dollars in this fund and you don't have six percent worth of of return for that person on that million dollars or is it oh well i got a million dollars i go shopping for returns so so Take, take, take the wheel on that, that uh, word vomit that I just gave to you. So there's a couple different, obviously, you know, the, the yield is definitely a worry. So a couple things you can do. So funds can be structured any way that obviously legally is allowed. So for example, for our first fund, 
since the the two key managers have done syndications before they're familiar with it they just haven't closed anything under the fund name the fund itself does not have properties like you mentioned so in that case what we are doing is the first fund is actually what we call a growth fund so they are actually getting all of their returns at the end of their hold time instead of through periodic payments you know on a monthly or quarterly basis so that in uh, in essence buys us a little bit of time to get those properties you know acquired get them stabilized get them producing the income that is then going to be in return you know returned back to those passive investors in the timeline that they chose so they can choose 5 years they can choose 8 years they can choose 3 years and the return obviously goes along with the timeline that they chose. Okay, so uh, can if I if I say all right, I want to put my money into this fund at a six percent return for three years, does that compound? It, in our case, it does not. But in some, it really depends on the fund itself is one hundred percent unique to that operator and to that fund. So that's why it's really important to dive in just like you would have in a syndication where they have a private placement memorandum and a subscription agreement that kind of outlines all the little legalese and details of that particular deal. It's the same way with a fund. It's just called an offering circular and a subscription agreement. So you'll read through and try and see kind of, you know, for example, if syndications do come from a syndication background, if you have a heavy lift, you know, chances are you're not going to be doing quarterly distributions from a heavy lift off the get-go. You're going to kind of prime your investors and say, look, we have a 3x multiple, but you're not going to see any distributions in year one at all while we have the property under construction, we're getting occupancy back up. And they're okay with that because they knew from the very get-go that this was a, you know, maybe an equity play as opposed to a cash flow play. Whereas there's other operators that go out and buy stabilized assets you know, maybe they're a little turnkey, maybe you just have to go in and do a little bit of a hard turn on 25% of the units, but you are getting distributions from day one. So you're kind of baking that business plan and that business where you are in the business cycle for your business, whether you're a startup, whether you're established into how you're offering the fund, same way you do in a syndication. Can, so whenever somebody goes to invest in a fund, are there left and right limitations on what you can do with that fund? Like, so if, if somebody's investing saying, Hey, look, uh, Alex is doing syndications with this money. We're basically putting money into a pot for her to draw from because she's, she, she has access to these deals that she can provide a return, but you're also very good at, at lending private money. So if the, if the syndication deals dry up, um, can you turn around and say, I'm going to lend some of this money on private money that's going to give a 10% return. And that guarantees that I can give you a 6% return. Or is there legality saying, no, you can't, you can't cross streams like that. You have to invest the way that people intended their money to be invested whenever they signed up for the fund. It really goes back to that documentation. So the offering circular, if the offering circular is something that's a little more of like a blind real estate fund, a blind pool, that says, you know, these operators are investing, you know, in real estate, have a nice day. That leaves the door wide open to what they, those particular operators or fund managers could potentially, you know, do with those, that capital. Now, whether you're going to get a whole bunch of investors to sign off on the dotted line is a different story. So you want to walk that line where you want to have a pretty solid business plan. You want to prove, you know, have history and knowledge that you can get the returns that you're promising these passive investors. But at the same time, leave enough wiggle room where if you need to pivot, you know, in a time where multifamily 
families going for historically low cap rates, if you need to pivot into something else to chase yield or you know get a little bit of a premium, you have kind of the leeway to do it. So again, it really falls back on the uniqueness and variability of what the fund is actually structured to do, what their legal docs say you can legally do. Is a fund a guaranteed return or a projected return? It's going to be projected return. It's an investment like any other investment. So nobody, if anybody ever comes up to you and says it's a guaranteed return, you know they're lying through their teeth. Because that's a loan, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much does it cost to start up your own fund? That really depends on the type of fund. Um, so there's multiple types of funds. You could technically do a fund through the 506 route, you know, what most people consider syndication. You could actually do, you know, a debt pool fund, you know, for a 506B or a 506C. So that would have a similar startup cost as it would for a syndication. I would say anywhere between ten dollars and $20,000, depending on, you know, the docs and your attorney. Um, just from the legal perspective, um, the CF funds are generally a little more expensive. You're, I would say anywhere between twenty dollars and $35,000 from what I've seen from attorneys just to set up the, the CF fund, get all the paperwork and stuff squared away. What's the Regulation, CF fund? Uh, crowdfunding. That's what Jonathan uh, and Vadim are doing. And then Regulation A plus is by far the most expensive. And you're easily looking at just attorney's fees. You're easily looking at about $60,000. You have to do blue sky filings, which are generally anywhere between twelve dollars and $25,000. You have a pretty big marketing budget. Um, you know, it's it's quite easy to end up at the quarter million dollar mark in expenses, even before you accept any investor capital. What's what is a reg A like? Is, are those things that I'm seeing on Facebook where people are, hey, invest in real estate uh, via this fund? Is that a reg A fund or would that be more of a reg CF fund where they're marketing to? Because uh, regulation CF does allow for public advertising with some caveats. Regulation A does allow for um, uh, open advertising as well. 506C allows for you know open-end advertising, but obviously they can only accept accredited investors. So it really depends on, and that and those aren't even the only ways you know to raise capital. So it really depends on what type of fund it is. Okay. That so fun, funds to me are are seem like an awesome uh, avenue, which is probably why you're starting one. Because I like the idea of the the money being available, and it's people buying into you as an investor, saying, "Look, I I don't know what to, I got money. I don't know what to do with it. You look like you know what to do with money. Here's some money. Go do something with it. And here's what you project as a return. And right now, I really do think a lot of people, uh, especially. If like whenever we're talking to friends and family grew up, I don't have a lot of, especially being in the military too, don't have a network of high net worth individuals. I don't think Louisiana has a network of high net worth individuals, right? Grew up around a bunch of broke people doing broke people things. Um, but the, the, whenever I talk to them about a syndication, they're like, man, this sounds great. This is a great return. What's the, how much do I need to invest? And whenever I tell them like, it's look, it's like a minimum of like $50,000. They're like, what? I, uh, bro, like I have it, but I don't, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm yeah, not. And that's, that is 100% why we started this because it started by an active duty service member, a veteran, and you know, I'm a military spouse. Everybody on the team has something to do with the military. And obviously our network is going to be very military centric. 
So you have those same conversations with people. You're like, yeah, you know, we're buying this apartment building. We're doing this. We're doing that. And they had they had closed on uh, a couple deals during 2020 during COVID. And, you know, having to turn away and have those same conversations with people, it almost makes them feel like, well, well, why am I even going to try and invest in real estate if I can't even make the minimum for this one deal? You know, so yeah. we wanted to come up with a way that allowed them to basically be able to get the same benefits as investing in a syndication for $50,000, but for a lot less. So for example, our fund minimum for the growth fund is $5,000. So that's, that's a lot more, that's a lot easier pill to swallow when you're first starting out, just trying to learn what this whole real estate investing, passive investing thing is. Is $5,000 invested for five years going to change your entire financial outlook? No, but what it does do is changes your mindset, which can change your outlook. As a fund manager, like like the, the scenario I was talking about where let's just say it's way more popular and you have way more money than you have deals for, and it's like a real problem. You can't feed the fund. Can you return money to the investors because you don't have enough, you don't have the ability to, um, to supply them with the return that you promised? Or uh, can you cap it off and say, we're only collecting like $2 million because that's kind of the 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 experience level that you have to be able to put into syndications right now is it is it flexible in that manner it is flexible in the manner of you can choose how much to raise you can choose which state so for example if you are from louisiana you want to help empower people in louisiana to have a better financial legacy then you could say i'm only going to accept investors from louisiana for example um you know same thing with any other state whatever kind of demographic you wanted you wanted to do the limitations <laughs> come on hypothetical here but uh, the, the there are limitations for what you can overall raise but those are dictated by the type of funds you choose so for example cf funds i believe they're tapped out at five million dollars and then regulation A plus actually just got a boost from 50 million to 75 million. So you can actually raise up to 75 million in 12 months. You know, if your marketing team is good enough and your, you know, managing team is good enough, they can place 70 75 million dollars, you know, go for it. So it's I don't foresee that being necessarily an issue because there's opportunity. It's it's having that growth mindset versus the scarcity mindset. So if you go in going oh, I'm never going to find 8% returns on a, on a regular basis, then your brain is going to prove yourself right and you're not. But if you walk in with, oh my God, there's all this opportunity, you know, how am I ever going to raise enough capital for all these opportunities? You're going to keep seeing opportunity. Fair enough. What, 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 who, is, who should start a fund and what problems do they have that a fund can solve? Who should start one? <laughs> Crazy people. <laughs> so... The, the fund route, I think, gets, I think it's kind of the fad, you know, the romanticized. It's almost like it's the perception is that you're a syndicator that's grown up. You no longer have to worry about syndication because now you've grown up and become a fund. And I think that kind of belief is, is poorly placed and misguided okay. because they have different goals and different uh, abilities. And I don't think enough people take that into consideration. So for example, you know, syndication is tied to one property. So you are an operator with your GP team in that one property, you know, and that might be fine. I mean, even if it's a good sized property, if it's three, 400 units, it's that one property in that one market. You just need to know that one property in that one market really, really well. 
if you are the operator of a fund and you are potentially operating in multiple markets across multiple states, you know, you go from having to worry about 300 or, you know, 600 or 1,000 units. If, you know, you're talking about placing $50 million, you know, that's potentially $100 million worth of assets under management. That's a lot of worry. That's a lot. It's bigger is not always better. You know, it's, it yeah. goes back to that lifestyle. So if you don't want the lifestyle where this is your full-time 80 hours a week, you're in asset manager meetings because you're responsible for, you know, 18 different properties across six different states, then fund is probably not your route to go. But if you would rather be on a GP team with maybe, you know, six properties and it's the same GP team and, you know, you're just, you're good doing your six properties, you're running them really well, you enjoy doing the asset management, you, maybe you have 20 hours a week worth of work for those six properties and that's the income level you want, then stick with syndication. I don't necessarily view it as, you know, fund is what you do when you grow up and grow out of syndication. I don't, I don't want to leave people with that assumption that, you know, you've become such a successful syndicator, you're now doing a fund. I don't, I just personally don't think that's a thing. I'm not against fads, by the way. I'm doing a juice <laughs> diet as of this morning, and probably tomorrow I should stop podcasting because I'm I'm going to be a different human. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's got me on a all juice diet she ordered online, and I'm about to turn into a dragon. <laughs> but well, cool. So that and that 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 makes sense. While the guys out in Virginia that I talked to are starting a fund because um, I don't I don't no i'll ask him if, if this is something i should put on the podcast or not but they were basically he was here's the risk that he was willing to take his current portfolio is what he is selling to the fund to kickstart it at a reduced rate he like he's losing a lot of equity but he understands that the people who invest in his fund are going to be fed day one uh because his portfolio is essentially being sold at a rate of of like let's say it's a, a 6% return knowing that he's collecting a 12% return. So he's cutting his equity in half to kickstart the fund. But uh, his vision is that if the fund is successful day one, then the fund will grow and he'll be able to, you know, like 10 X or whatever the terminology mm -hmm. is, whatever kids are saying these days uh, is, uh, is worth it in the long run. I thought that was pretty admirable. And I was like, man, I don't know if I could cut my everything that I've worked uh, on now could share it with people who have not worked on that to give them a return like that's pretty awesome of him to do and it's a very uh, long-term growth mindset that would be something i'd have to overcome i'll tell you that <laughs> yeah. oh i just realized what time it is i actually have a 1 30 meeting I okay have to run to sounds good i uh been, can wrap we, this up. we just killed like a 90 minutes like like it was nothing the bathroom break didn't help but yeah that's uh <laughs> glad i got to talk to you uh want to talk to you some more uh yeah so so yeah i appreciate it i will do the intro and all that stuff separately and i don't know when these are going to launch but i know you got to go so i'll let you go okay perfect it was great talking to you and we'll catch up soon you as well alex take care all right bye Thanks for listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast, where we give you the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Learn more at realfocus.org slash gorillastatepod.